Welcome to the Shoot This Now podcast, the podcast where every week we talk about stories that should be made into movies or TV shows. My name is Tim Malloy. I am your only host this week because my co-host, Matt Donnelly, is in the Czech Republic doing something mysterious. This week, our guest is Mark Ramsey, who is the host of the Inside Jaws podcast, a podcast about the creation of the movie Jaws, and a lot of other things, too. It's really about Steven Spielberg's journey from a kind of scared, uncertain filmmaker to a confident and at one point even cocky director who was pretty certain he was going to get, well, you should listen to Mark's podcast. It's excellent. Besides being about the making of Jaws and the making of Steven Spielberg, it has a ton of great Hollywood anecdotes. It has incredible moments that will just set you at different points in American history. The sweep of Inside Jaws is incredible. You go from 1916 to 2018 to the 70s to the Pacific Ocean in 1945, scene of a horrific, unbelievable shark attack, which Steven Spielberg actually wanted to make the subject of Jaws 2. That's one thing that Mark and I talk about uh, and why that movie didn't end up happening as it should have. I want to thank everybody who tuned in last week to our episode on Bruce Lee and to our guest, Matthew Polly, author of the wonderful book, Bruce Lee, A Life. That was our most successful podcast ever. And if you liked the Bruce Lee episode, you'll probably like this episode. If you like this episode, you'll probably like that episode because you have good taste and are cool. Please give us five stars if you feel like it. Please pass this along to a friend if you feel like it. And now please enjoy this interview with Mark Ramsey host of Inside Jaws. There are a couple of shark attacks that you recreate that are so devastating and so emotionally hard to listen to, which is just a testament to the power of your audio, the power of your delivery. Yeah, a lot, it's funny because a lot of that is uh, a combination of, uh, uh, obviously, I'm writing for sound, but it's also the amazing audio production of my collaborator, Jeff Schmidt, who does this stuff for a living, and he is just uh, the best there is at it. He crushes it. I mean, when you hear the, the wood bending and when you hear the thumping yep. of the sharks, yep. you, you reproduce, I think, about six different shark attacks in this, one of which goes on over several days. Um yes. And it's it's agonizing. Well, there's one scene uh, late in the series where uh, I, I, uh, something bad happens to a shark, let's say, and yeah. he he reached out to me and he said, "We need more, we need more noises of you uh, beating against a shark." <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm sitting here in my office recording these no- these guttural noises of banging against a shark and no you know i can only imagine what people think who are in offices nearby <laughs> so there are people in offices nearby and you have to tell them oh hey i'm going to be screaming for a few minutes well, you know what i i think it's more fun to let them imagine why i'm screaming for a few minutes but yes <laughs> so did you you do pretty much if i'm not mistaken you do every voice in this Yes, there there's some uh, environmental voices that uh, that uh, Jeff, my production partner, fills in with. But yes, that's kind of the concept, actually. I, I, you know, I have a kind of philosophy about this stuff. You know, I, I, when I was a kid, I listened to the old time radio theater, and I always thought that it just didn't really translate well um, to an era when people are accustomed to pictures, fast moving pictures, 
uh, that this idea of lots of people saying, it's just more confusing than not. So I thought, what if I use one voice and then let the audio kind of position that voice in different places such that you get an impression? In other words, make the whole thing impressionistic. Um, and because, look, you know it's, you're not listening to a soundtrack of an actual shark kill anyway, so you might as well make it impressionistic. And that's, uh, if you think about it, um, there, the fast takes that you see at the movie theater, the fast takes that you see on television, the fast sequences, those are all impressionistic. That's a perfectly legitimate way to communicate through uh, video in that case and audio in this case. There's one scene, in fact, uh, one of my favorite scenes, in fact, in the series, where we talk about the central problem of Jaws, which was that the shark was never working. Right. And we have a very cool, I hope you thought it was cool, montage scene there. It works very well. And it's it, just, it's about 90 seconds, and it's Spielberg uh, uh, going to bed, waking up, sipping his tea, getting new notes from Carl Gottlieb, getting in the car, going to the studio, the shark's not working, bring out the barrels. And then we do that like three or four times, and it takes about 60 seconds, and it gives you a sense for just how exhausting and repetitive this experience was, all the while the thing just wasn't working. It really does, and it's a lot of fun to listen to also. It definitely sells what Spielberg was going through. Um, that's really the heart of this story for you, right? It's what, how Steven Spielberg became Steven Spielberg? That's a really good question and a very perceptive, uh, perceptive way of looking at it because, uh, yes. Um, in fact, uh, one of my working titles for this wasn't Inside Jaws. It was Becoming Spielberg because huh. this really— uh, this really is uh, well. We're all just to be clear, this is the third in the series of these projects I've done for Wondery, which is a wonderful uh, leading podcast uh, network um, mm. that I've been really proud to partner with. The first one was Inside Psycho, then Inside The Exorcist, now Inside Jaws. All three have really dealt with the protagonist of the you know the creative force behind the the films. This one in particular, though, is interesting to me because. You know, Hitchcock was coming to Psycho off great success. Uh, Friedkin had just won an Oscar. But Spielberg was virtually a nobody when he came to this. Um, he had one theatrical success, which was a, a theatrical release, which was a bomb. And this was next. He had success in television with Duel, but uh, his first theatrical thing was a bomb. And then came this opportunity, and he knew full well that this would either make him or break him. And every indication along the way was that this would break him. And yeah. I go back at the beginning of the story to his uh, beginnings, you know, growing up as a geeky uh, kid who didn't fit in, Jewish kid in a world of Gentiles in Phoenix, which is just, it's just a great backstory. Yeah. Um, to the point where he discovers the magic of film, uh, where he breaks into Universal uh, where he gets the chance to direct television with Joan Crawford. <laughs> yeah. And and then uh, into the making of Duel and, and Jaws. And then we fast forward more to the present, where, and, and I love this most about it, where even at 72, I think he is, um, he still got the pressure of releasing a new movie because the man hadn't had a big hit in 10 years. He'd been doing all these prestige projects. Obviously, he can do whatever he wants, but he hadn't had a big audience-pleasing hit in 10 years. And that's when Ready Player One came out. And yeah. that, so he was literally, to this day, he bites his nails to the quick 
when he contemplates the pressures of a release. There's something someone says about filmmaking to Spielberg, and I don't want to give too much away, but it's it's essentially everyone who works on films is terrified and is at the edge of their seat all the time, and you can never tell anyone that. Yes, I, 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 I like that because I wanted something to contribute to kind of his inner dialogue, the fact that he was having this anxiety and he needed to share that with someone who understood. And he went to a prominent director who told him that everything you're feeling is normal. And you know, Tim, here's the thing, that between the lines of everything in this series is, if, if you really stand back from it 30,000 feet and say, well, you know, what does all this mean? This is really the creator's story. This mm-hmm. is really the story of the artist. This is the story of the writer, the, 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 the filmmaker, the songwriter, um, the you know, comic maker, uh, the TV maker. This is the, the maker's story. All these anxieties are, are universal. Um, all these uh, challenges are universal. And if you're lucky, something clicks. And that's what it's all about. One of the points you make about Jaws is that if people laugh at the shark when they first see it, this entire movie is a huge bomb. And, of course, people right. did not laugh at the shark. He still haunts us. Um, but with you, it's kind of like if people laugh at your sound effects, if people laugh at mm-hmm. the way you integrate them, and if people laugh at your voice or your delivery, none of this works. Um, right. Did, did you have a sense at one point of, you know, I'm really hanging on by my fingernails here? Well, I don't think so because this is the third series we've done, and the mm-hmm. first two have just been, you know, incredibly well accepted. I mean, mm-hmm. we've got we've got people pursuing TV rights for this series right now. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, it, so for that reason, I knew the formula worked. I will tell you at the beginning, I had no idea the formula was going to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I went in and said, I went in and I went in with five minutes of of, of demo audio for Psycho. Wow. And, and I said, here's the pitch. And they said, well, okay. And they said, but don't, don't you want more? Wouldn't it be good to have more voices? <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, let's, let's see. I mean, when I put it out, I literally didn't know if people would follow it. But, you know, uh, and, but the challenging an audience, demanding some attention from an audience is not a bad thing if what you've got is worth that attention. That's the thing. I mean, there's somewhere between, you know, everything being right out there and obvious and the season finale of Westworld is the right blend. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it works really well. I mean, you have such a flexible voice. You can really sort of dart in and out of all of these scenes really effectively. And I never, never got bored, which is unusual right. in a seven part podcast. And it's. Po- it's interesting that you say that because, you know, we had kind of the philosophy going into this. If you notice, all of the scenes are are, are relatively short. Most of them are one or two minutes long. Mm-hmm. And, and it's very fast paced. No matter how slow the scene is, the pacing is very fast. And it's kind of something that I've been calling uh, audiographic novel. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's, it's dramatic changes between scenes. The scenes might be out of sequence. There's a reason for the nonlinearity. I mean, for ex- the very beginning, for example, we go back to some of the precursor shark attacks in uh, New Jersey, 1916, which were legendary and which were rumored to be one of the primary inspirations for Jaws. And then we cut right to um, to uh, 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 Spielberg. Um, uh, I think the second. I'm trying to remember now the sequence, but either the second or the third scene is Spielberg 
just fretting a year after the movie comes out, um, which he did actually um, on the deck of the Orca at Universal Studios <laughs> yeah. where the Jaws ride was. Yeah. And he actually would go there routinely to uh, to sweat things out and then then cut to Phoenix in 1980 or so. I can't remember the year. And uh, someone's going into the basement, uh, cleaning it out, and they find this big box. And it's a big box of 8-millimeter films and uh, in various states of disrepair that's been there for decades. And on the side of the box is scrawled in Sharpie, Steve Spielberg. And then that box, as you heard in the series, that box ended up in the hands of a couple of kids in L.A. who who, uh, restored the movies. And those kids uh, grew up to be J.J. Abrams and Matt Reeves, uh, established directors, producers in Hollywood. So it's amazing how all these pieces fit together. And I found, you know, kind of putting all those threads together under one roof was really a lot of fun. And it makes the story that much richer. Yeah, these two kids who end up being in charge of the Batman and Star Wars and Star Trek franchises. It's just it's incredible. And in fact, I have a scene late in the series where where uh, where JJ encounters Spielberg again, and they hearken back to that that uh, that that moment. And Spielberg says he's been following him all along. Now, you know the way this series is done. By the way, just to be clear, it's really not, it's not documentary. Mm-hmm. It's really docudrama. It's really biopic. Mm-hmm. I've I I view this series as um, as a limited series television. Uh, series, mm-hmm. limited television series. That's how I conceived it. That's how I wrote it. That's how we produced it. Uh, it is television without the pictures. And I think yeah. it, it, you tell me, I mean, you heard the whole thing. Does it play that way? It works really well. And that's even without the visuals because you bring the USS Indianapolis attack. Mm-hmm. That for anybody listening is the infamous shark attack that Robert Shaw talks about in probably the most crucial scene of Jaws where he talks about you know, 900 men went into the ocean, 300 came out. The others basically drank a mix of salt water, oil, and blood and were eaten alive by sharks. It's the most right. horrific death right. you can possibly imagine. Um, your, you brought that to life so incredibly with just audio. When I think of what that will look like visually, my God, people will win well, awards. Well, you, you would think. <laughs> you would think, unless it stars Nicolas Cage and it's a it's an off price production. Uh, but yeah, if it had been what Steven Spielberg wanted it to be, um, and um, that was his original. You know, originally they came to him about a sequel for Jaws, and he said, "I'll do it if it's about the Indianapolis." Yeah. And they said no, um, and he said uh, no. So that's how they parted ways at that point. Although I will say, Jaws two. Uh, in its own rights, is a pretty good movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's decent. So we would have gotten Spielberg to kind of do a mix of Saving Private Ryan and Jaws in right. the Pacific. That's right. Um, if which is a movie that, I wish. Which is a movie I wish we could see. It would have been incredible. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the Nicolas Cage. They did eventually tell the story of U- USS Indianapolis, but it turned out to be a Nick Cage movie that was not great, from what I. Yes, I can't I can't remember the name of it, but uh, it was it was out about three or four years ago. And if you just pictured Nick Cage floating in the Pacific, that tells you all you need to know. By the way, I love Nick Cage, but I love him. I love him for kind of the wrong reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
so you saw this as a television show, and it sounds like that's going to happen. People are people are well, looking we're, for we're, the rights to this. Where the rights are being shopped right now is where it stands. But uh, it, it's it's how is this different from Feud? The 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 um, uh, Betty Davis uh, Joan Crawford uh, story that was uh, on Fox, I think last year or FX. I can't remember. I think it was FX. FX. And uh, yeah, it's it's. It's a story that the the movie is a player in the story. The movie is a a stage for the story, but the movie's not the story. This is really the story of Steven Spielberg evolving from a geeky kid to you know a legendary director who never loses his fears, but is but through uh, good fortune, great talent, and um, um, uh, you know whatever other blessings he receives. Um, He's uh, he's a master of the craft and the most most and the best known guy doing what he does in the world. This does seem like a natural for FX. It seems like a natural for HBO. Can you say at all where this might end up? Well, I, I don't know exactly. I, I mean, those things are are out of my hands. Uh, I sit back and, you know, I say, look, call on me if you need me. <laughs> this yeah. is your guy's business. You know how to do this thing. Um, and, uh, they're trying to attach interested, uh, talent, interested, uh, uh, production company directors, et cetera. And that's where it stands right now. I mean, but all of that was before Jaws. All of that was kind of in the presence of inside Psycho and inside The Exorcist. In my mind, Jaws elevates it even more because as I said to somebody the other day, if this were to happen in television, the reason it would happen would be because of Steven Spielberg or the reason it wouldn't happen would be because of Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> Have you reached out to him? Is he on board with this, resistant to it? I, I have not reached out to him uh, through the grapevine. I've heard that his people are well aware of it and mm -hmm. uh, have it on his radar. Mm -hmm. And I understand he's uh, taking some time away this summer, as he well deserves. Mm -hmm. So um, that's either an opportunity to listen to it. I don't honestly, if it were me, I don't know if I'd want to listen to seven episodes of my backstory. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, given that he's such a story monger, um, I probably would. So yeah, my understanding is that it's on his radar. But a lot of the people in the in the community are obviously aware of it, and if they're not, they really should be because, you know, if you're a storyteller, if you're in the business of telling stories, licensing stories, producing stories, showing stories. Um, you have to be open to audio. You have yeah. to wake up to audio. You have to wake up to the power of audio. This is not 1945 anymore, and yeah. audio is not limited to the kind of journalism that you know popular podcasts like Serial and This American Life are famous for. There's more stuff you can do. You can entertain people. You can you can move people. You can make them laugh. You can make them cry. I mean, I, I had somebody tell me at the end of the um, Jaws series that uh, they they actually choked up at the end. And I thought, perfect, you know, that's audio doing that to you. Yeah. Uh, that's not a movie. That's not a TV series. That's audio doing that. So I hope that the community, wake, the Hollywood community, wakes up to this more, more uh, faster and understands just how good this can be. Yeah. Well, you also get to do kind of a dry run of a TV show without anywhere near the expense. I mean, they can hear how effectively this dramatic arc works and not have to spend the money to... I mean, you can do that with a script, of course, but you can bring it to life with audio in a way that you can't do it flat on a page. That's absolutely true. In fact, I, I, I think I'm allowed to tell this story, but there's another project I'm working on 
uh, with which is very much in that category. The reason why it's happening is because uh, it can be done in audio much less expensively than in TV or film, but it's a great story that has obvious resonance in TV and film. And yeah. uh, it's a project uh, that I'm working on. Gosh, I think I'm allowed to talk about this. Um, this is not going to be published anywhere, is it? <laughs> Uh, sadly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a project I'm working on about the life of Louis Armstrong. Oh, cool. Uh, um, and it's in association with uh, my uh, some partners of mine at Workhouse Connect, which is one of the uh, leading podcast producers, and uh, Brian Medavoy and the actor Rena Wilson. Rena Wilson from Mike and Molly and, um, oh. and, ba- and Good Girls. And this is the, the story Reno's wanted to tell all his life. And um, he, we're telling the Louis Armstrong story in a dramatic, vivid way in six parts with Reno Wilson as Louis Armstrong. Wow. Totally unique. And again, the people who've heard it just go nuts over it. It hasn't published yet. It's not out yet. It's not quite done yet. But it's just terrific. And uh, again, I think people are going to wake up to the dramatic possibilities of audio as not just IP for potential t- film and television, but a legitimate way to pilot test stuff, to put stuff out in the marketplace, to demonstrate how wonderful a concept is through the power of sound. I mean, it's, it's, it's inevitable. And now in this on-demand world where podcasting is actually, you know, becoming a thing, uh, now's the time. If I can ask about the TV interest, in, and congratulations, that sounds awesome, first of all. I'm going to be you know, downloading that as soon as it happens. Um, in, because this is a shark story, in terms of Hollywood circling this podcast, the Jaws podcast, I mean, are we at the level of, forgive me here, you know, shark circling? Are we at the level of feeding frenzy? Like, what's what's the level of interest? Well, it's hard for me to say that because the asset, the IP has been available for, the IP has been shopping for months now, uh-huh. Again, on the basis of Inside Psycho and Inside the Exorcist. Yeah. Only as of this past Tuesday is any part of Inside Jaws available, and only the first two episodes of Seven are yeah. available so far. So what you've heard has been heard in its entirety by almost no one uh, mm. so far. So I think that that's going to ch- that's going to create more um, motivation. Uh, for people to to you know it's it's going to say wow this is I mean if, if listening front to back to that story you're not listening to a director's commentary on an old movie classic right. or otherwise you're listening to an all new original story that has tremendously familiar elements yet new elements all at the same time and it's got an arc um, and I mean that's what movies and television are. So to me, it follows all the uh, traditional um, uh, ingredients and um, the investment. This is another thing that you kind of alluded to that I don't know that people appreciate enough is the if you think about the investment of CG in, you know, a big summer tentpole, the investment of audio production, quality and talent and time um, is every bit the equal of that in this project. This project, and I've had people tell me who are in the production business, they tell me that this project has a level of, of, of audio sound design, audio density, production, that's uh, superior to about 95% of 
um, what's out there in the space. And I think that's they only say that because nobody knows for sure 100 percent. Right. I mean, none of us have. It could be ninety nine. <laughs> yeah, none of us have listened to everything, but of of the things I've heard, this sounds the best. So, I mean, we were very. It was intended to be cinematic. It's written cinematic. It's performed cinematic, and it is sound design cinematic. This is moving pictures without the pictures, and that was our intention from from moment one. And then the idea that well, can we put together all these you know clashing scenes that are you know, out of sequence and, and, you know, we skip forward and backwards in time. We're 1916, we're 1975, we're having, you know, lunch with Peter Benchley. We're, you know, in a, it, it, we're Spielberg's trying to get sleep on the set of uh, Jaws in Martha's Vineyard. Uh, you put all these things together. Does it hang together? Is there yeah. a narrative thread? You know, is there a theme? Um, and, uh, and then that's, I think the, 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 and it's great to sit back after it's done and say, ha, ah, this worked because, you know, at no point along the way was I absolutely positively sure that this would work. And I knew it worked one moment. And that was last Sunday night when I got the draft of the final episode from Jeff, my production partner, Jeff Schmidt, um, and I knew, I listened to the final episode and I said, well, there it is. There's the bow. It works. Yeah. And it works really, really well. Yeah. You know, I saw one review, maybe the first re review on iTunes where somebody said, oh, the writer of this clearly made a mistake because it bounces all over the place. But that's my favorite part. <laughs> that's what I like about it. I mean, you give the piece of information exactly when we need to know that piece of information and it works thematically, and it just gives us just enough backstory um, for the story to go on. It works really well. Yeah, and I appreciate that. I mean, there, for example, in the in the Indianapolis section, we tell a little bit about the Indianapolis. Um, we come back to the story of the Indianapolis, and we we and then we go into Robert Shaw telling his story and how everyone responded so emotionally to his telling. And then I put a put a bow on it at that point. And even towards the end, for reasons that will become clear to people who listen, I take Spielberg back to a moment with his grandfather um, in Phoenix, uh, yeah. where his grandfather uh, shows him the uh, the the. Uh, let's uh, let's not even say because that's all is right. Such a great shows moment. him something. I don't, I don't want to Fair mess enough. it up for people. Um, shows him something important that turns out to be really important to hear before you hear the immediate next scene and then the close. I it's, mean, it's just, it's emotionally wrenching. It's it's emotionally wrenching, and it's also, it's sad, and it's funny, unexpectedly. Yes. Um, yes. It just really gives you a sense of who his grandfather was and who, where he's coming from. And there's there's a lot of, you see a lot of the qualities of Spielberg's movies in that moment. It's a great yes, moment. Yes, that I'm so glad you say that because I was very conscious and very intent on, as I put it to people before this thing was even written, um, what I wanted to do was create a Steven Spielberg movie about a Steven Spielberg movie. Oh, and that's great. As, as best I could. And, that, and the fact that this has a mix of heart and humor and sadness and tragedy and uh, victory uh, and horror and thrills, all of that mix is right there on the screen in Jaws. Yeah. And it's right there in all the, and this is really, when I say a Steven Spielberg movie about a Steven Spielberg movie, I mean a classic Steven Spielberg movie about a classic Steven Spielberg movie. Yeah. Um, 
before the so-called important movies, uh, which, you know, there's reasons to make. Um, because I grew up with him. You grew yeah. up with him. We yeah. all, all the filmmakers that follow him grew up with him. Um, this is, in many ways, a love letter to Steven Spielberg and a big, fat seven-episode thank you. There are all these wonderful stories within this story, just like there are a lot of wonderful mini-stories within a great Steven Spielberg movie, like the little side notes in the post, the little side stories within mm -hmm. Schindler's List. Um, so you, within Inside Jaws, you also get the story of Robert Shaw and his father. You also get the dynamic between Richard Dreyfuss and Robert Shaw. You get all these mm -hmm. great just Hollywood anecdotes, and I think it works really well. Um, and it also lends itself to some amazing casting opportunities. Uh, if this becomes a TV show, which it sounds like it will. Um, have you thought about who would play Steven Spielberg and who would play some of these other parts? Well, not so much the other parts, but you asked me to think about the Spielberg question, so I had to do some homework there and uh, and really think about it because, you know, there's the, he was so young at this time. I mean, I can't remember exactly his age. He was in his mid-20s, I think, uh, at this yeah. point. And I thought, well, you know, wh who would be the young Noah Wiley, you know? Oh, wow. <laughs> the young Noah Wiley, though. Because um, Noah Wiley would be perfect if he were that age. Huh. Um, and here's who I came up with. Are you ready? Hit me. Okay. So um, here's my, se I have second choice and first choice. Here's my second choice. Tom Holland. Oh, outstanding. Okay, that's very good. Are you ready for the first choice? Is it Shia LaBeouf? No, it's not. No, there's too much a backstory there. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> and he's too okay. old anyway. Okay. Um, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Timothée Chalamet. Oh, my God. Yeah, that would be absolutely spectacular. Now, he's a little on the young side, but that's all the more, you know, all the more impact it would make because of it. And you put some facial hair on that guy, you know, longer hair. Um his voice is right. His look is right. Uh, he's really good. He'd be perfect. And he's just hot enough uh, yeah. to make it uh, to make it hot. That's so a, there's my casting for you. Um, previously in this podcast, Matt Donnelly and I, who's normally here, um, talked about Timothy Chalamet as the lover of Aleister Crowley, the avowed <laughs> Satanist who did sex demon rituals. Um, and I think Steven Spielberg is actually a much better role and a role that he is much more likely to take. <laughs> yeah, the way I look at it on all things Steven Spielberg is people are either much more likely to take it or much less likely to take it. And it could literally cut either way, depending on the nature of the project. But I, I you know, again, you know, as I look at this, there's some stuff in here that is would be uncomfortable, um, yeah. but not more uncomfortable than some of the anecdotes he shared in the uh, in the documentary that aired on HBO last year. Yeah. So, I, I in fact, a couple of those anecdotes are here dramatized in this series. Yeah. Uh, along with many things that are not dramatized. And, you know, there's really no up-to-date biography of Steven Spielberg. Uh, the last one was updated, I think, about 10 years ago. So in many ways, it, you know, he's, and just, I'm not saying this ironically, but he's kind of stuck in amber. Um, and a, a show like this, I think, kind of reminds you why you loved his work in the first place, why he is who he, he is who he is today, not because of the Post and Lincoln, right? Right. He is who he is today because of Jaws and 
Raiders and Close Encounters, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just a reminder of that kind of youthful exuberance, uh, that kind of thrill of filmmaking, that kind of thrill of audience pleasing, and to be able to pack that into seven episodes and make it entertaining and make it engaging and make it a tribute to this man without being, without, you know, uh, without being a suck up um, and telling a dramatic story and telling people things about Jaws they may not know, but more importantly, telling people things about people they may not know. Yeah. Um, because this is at its heart a very human story. It's a story about a guy who didn't have his place, didn't know what his place was, thought he had no place, was good at nothing, and then discovered how to make people happy. And that's a story worth telling. 